Welcome to the Harvard Data Science Review podcast. I'm Liberty Vitter, feature editor of the Harvard Data Science Review, and joining me is our co-host, editor-in-chief, and today's esteemed guest, Shali Men. We've been inundated with questions from all of you about what defines a data scientist, how to break into analytics, and ways for the average person to assess data reliability. That's why we turned to our very own Shali Meng, who has contemplated many such questions during the process of building the Harvard Data Science Review. In this episode, we'll delve into Shali's personal journey, notably being named the best statistician under the age of 40 by the Committee of Presidents of Statistical Societies, to becoming the founding editor-in-chief of the Harvard Data Science Review. Join us as we trace the steps that led to his remarkable accomplishments and illuminate the path you can follow to understand the data that shapes our world in our very first listener question special. So, Shelley, I, I was going to start with this question about how did you become, you know, sort of your path? Where, where are you from? What did you do? How did you become the editor-in-chief of the Harvard Data Science Review? But before I do that, I want to ask, do you identify as a data scientist or a statistician? You know, Liberty, that, that's the question that I always now ask anytime I give a talk. I would tell the audience, say, you know, I am a statistician. I like to collect some data before I start. And I will always ask the questions, you know, how many of you probably call yourself a data scientist? And what's interesting is that uh, depends on my audience. And usually, if it's a statistical audience, you don't see too many hands raised. But when you're in a more broad audience, you tend to have more people think themselves as a data scientist. So I'm answering your question a very long way uh, in the sense that I guess, you know, at least for a while, there is this kind of a, I don't know whether it's a confusion or it's reluctance that for statisticians to call themselves a data scientist, just because the notion of data science itself is not clear. But since I've been editing chief for Harvard Data Science Review for the last, what, four years, five years, I'd be very proud to call myself a data scientist in the same way that a biologist, a physicist, or a chemist will call themselves a scientist. That's a really interesting way to put it. I have to say my thought process behind it's not quite as sophisticated. I always feel like if I'm at dinner, if I say I'm a statistician, people go, oh, nobody wants to sit next to me. But if I say data scientist, they're like, oh, that's so interesting. Well, that's interesting because it used to be when I don't want to uh, have a lengthy conversation with a taxi driver or or my fellow passenger on a fly, I would just say, when they ask me, what do you do? I say, I teach statistics. And usually that's the end of the conversation. Pretty effective. Except that one time I got myself into trouble, I was actually uh, going to JSM, the Joint Statistical Meeting in Vancouver. I still remember I was coming back at the time from China, I was very tired, and the taxi driver was asking me, like, what do you do? I know he wants to have a chat. And I said, I teach statistics. And guess what? And he said, oh, I teach mathematics. And that was actually an interesting story. It turned out that he was a, a HM professor teaching mathematics somewhere in, in Seattle, but he was moonlighting as a taxi driver in Vancouver, you know. 
I love that. It's very effective if you say you're a statistician, except if there's a mathematician in the car. So, okay, so what what was your path? Where are you from? What what led you to being, quote, the greatest statistician of a generation? How did you get there? I think you just made up that term, but I, I like did this. not make that okay. up. I did not make that up. It is written. Okay. Uh, whoever wrote it uh, obviously did not know statistics, but that's fine. Where I grew up, I grew up in China. I was born in Shanghai, and uh, I came to this country uh, in 1986 as a PhD in statistics. I did my PhD at Harvard, where I'm teaching now, and then uh, you know what the people say, the rest is history, right? Once you become a PhD student, you you know, at that time, there's not like now, there's not much uh, choice if you're being a PhD student, you know, in statistics, you're not thinking about going to industry, you're not thinking about doing startup, you know, those terms did not exist. So pretty much most of us became uh, academics. So I went to University of Chicago, I taught for 10 years there, and I got a recruit back by Harvard in 2001. So it has been um, 20 some years. You know, coming to Cambridge from Shanghai, for all of our international students that are listening, did you did you feel lost? Did you feel at home? Was it hard? What did it feel like? Well, I guess anyone came at that time would give you the same answer. We had no idea what we were getting to it, right? Because unlike now, uh, there was not really internet. You know, there was not much written about what the country looks like. You know, for me coming to Harvard, I said, well, great university. I'm my concern was always about whether I could survive, you know. But when I came here, I really had some, you know, true culture shock, so to speak. And uh, I still remember at the very beginning, I was worried to even walk out on the street. I thought I spoken pretty good language, but of course, nobody understood what I was saying. That was very frustrating. But I remember one of my classmates, he decided, you know, actually, bunch of them. They decided to give me a culture shock. So one day they say, Xiaoli, we want to take you to a movie. I love movie. Okay. So I said, great. You know, but in the movie, you it's like a midnight on Saturday. I had no idea what movie was that. So I said, okay, sure. So they took me to the movie, but they told me I have to sit in the back. I have to sit in the back. I said, why? I want to sit. All the seats are open. I said, why would I sit in the back? Say, Xiaoli, you don't understand. Just sit in the back. I said, okay. So I sat back that the movie started. I was seeing some people singing, dancing. And, and then there are people was like actually in the audience, right? They can recite every line. And then somewhere, somebody started playing piano and there's through bottles. There's waters in the theater. I said, oh my God, now I know what it is. Yeah. But you guys probably know what movie I'm talking about, right? Now you guys have to say I the do. movie. Okay, tell the audience what the movie is. I'm not sure every young generation knows what the movie is. So Rocky Horror can... Picture Show. Exactly. Okay. That's I had classic. no idea. Yeah, that's a classic movie, right? So that was my culture shock. The truth culture <laughs> that shock. Would be I was a, sitting that's there. a culture shock for me. <laughs> I actually can tell you another story that's really funny. I actually recently wrote a whole piece about it. After I came to Harvard, it was 2001. I was appointed department chair in 2001. Four, then, as you know, I become dean in 2012. Uh, when I become dean at the time, I got some interviews from some local media. And I still remember the report was asking me, she asked me, say, when you were a student here, did you dream to become a dean? 
And I was just thinking, like, what kind of question is that? You know, if I knew I was going to be a dean, I would have transferred, right? Because who would have dreamed to be a dean? But but then I thought about, you know, it's it's a great question because when we came here, we had no idea what we were doing. And like now, there's a lot more information. But we just kind of, you know, do one thing at a time and eventually leads to where I'm now. I love that. One thing leads to another. That's literally well, so, what happened. You know, as we said at the very beginning, there's there's not a lot of clarity around the word data science. It's really confusing to a lot of people and, and people who are in the field as to what is what do all these words mean? What What's AI versus ML versus big data versus little data? So how is data science different from data analytics? How does an aspiring data-driven mind choose a path that best fits them? Is it computer science? Is it data analytics? Is it data science? Is it statistics? How do you see the difference between all these different words? Yeah, that's absolutely a great question. I have to say that if you ask me that question, say, five years ago, before I start the Harvard Data Science Review, I probably won't be able to give you uh, any answer that with any kind of a real meaning to it because I was just as confused as most people. But over these years, what I realized is, and this is just not my view, that many, many people come to this uh, uh, realization. The way you think about data science is very much like you would think about science or social science or humanity, right? The way when I give this talk, I would tell people like, we have all heard about a department of physics, department of chemistry, department of biology, but you rarely hear the term department of science. It's not a single field. It's a collection of a field to study the scientific method and so on and so forth, right? So the way you think about data science is like you think about science. It's a collection of many disciplines they all study the, the digital world, right? Very much like, you know, physics study the inorganic world, chemistry and, and biology will be studying the organic world, right? So on and so forth, right? It's a collection of the field that study the, you know, digital worlds or any digital information. Now, that turned out actually has a real consequence. It's not just an answer to a question, just sort of, you know, say what it is. Because for many, many universities uh, in the last five, 10 years, everybody trying to build something on data science. Whether you think about data science as a single discipline or a collection of discipline has a real impact in terms of what kind of infrastructure you're going to build. So I'm on the book to very clearly, I say, I against the idea to create a department of data science. Because if you create something like department of data science, it's just too crowded. So you rather say using the science, data science as this umbrella term, and then you can go down to specialize what fields you want to be in. Statistics, computer science, applied mathematics, economics, you know, philosophers. I mean, as you know, Harvard Data Science Review really published philosophical questions. The, the very question is, what is data? Why data helps? You know, these are fundamental questions, right? And so uh, you can think about all to specialize those things. But to think of them as a one single discipline, actually by now, probably most people would agree it's not very helpful. So what would your advice be? And this, this is what some of our listeners are asking. You know, what would your advice be to somebody who wants to go get a master's? Like, should they be doing a master's in data science or should they be doing a master's in statistics? What would be the best path that you would recommend for a student? 
Great. I'm actually going to borrow、uh, something written by my co-editor for Data Science Education, Rob Liu. He wrote an article in Harvard Data Science Review about what he viewed as the inclusive learning about data science. The one big point he made, which I completely agree, he said, "Well, think about data science because they are so broad. It's very hard for me to find a field where the data science is, is irrelevant. Okay, that's very hard to find." So, because data science is all over the place, you can just start with what is your interest, what is your passion is. Let's just somebody say, "I actually hate mathematics. Can I be a data scientist?" Well, actually, my answer is yes. You know, you might be surprised by that. Well, for example, there are lots of legal scholars study the privacy law, the you know the the data privacy laws, right? I don't mean that you don't need to take any mathematics. You need to take some you know. Basic mathematics, you need to understand, you know, these concepts. But you don't have to have a passion of mathematics in order to be a data scientist or have passion of being a statistician. You could have a great passion about, you know, legal study. You want to be a lawyer, right? And there are actually those lawyers who have a strong expertise in data privacy, in copyright laws, because that's very relevant these days with AI, with ChatGPT. These are highly, highly sought after expertise. Right, and you can actually pretty much call yourself data scientist, at least in my definition, because you'll be working on these issues that are incredibly important for the society. For example, like data privacy. Right. So again, I would say, first evaluate what your passion is. Definitely have some basic statistics. Definitely have some computer science. I would also suggest people should also take a little bit about anything about a human behavior, psychology, or something. For example, like what I do in terms, I work on. Data quality, how people respond to survey, lots of things about understanding people's behavior. If you understand behavior, it's a long way to go in terms of understanding how the the data quality. And then, frankly, the world has become so kind of digital. It's almost like even you're not seeking these careers, these careers will be seeking you because you will find those things come to you. Yes, the fastest growing profession is data scientists that people are looking for, and I think that was a really interesting question that you said about the psychology of people. That you know, data your data is really only as good as the people you collect it from when you're collecting data、Absolutely. about people. What are the biggest issues? Is it that people lie? You know, what what are the behavioral psychology issues that you really need to understand about people when you're collecting data? Yeah, well, let me give you a specific example because I worked a little bit on that. That's my 2018 article about data quality and about 2016 election at the time, right? We we're trying to understand why, you know, because as a statistician, I got asked a lot. Everybody asked, like, you guys know what you're doing, like you predicted, and it's kind of, you know, regardless of your ideology, everybody gets shocked. Most people get shocked, and then the so we look into the data, right? And the idea is we know that you collected data. And you can do all the fancy stuff we call the randomization, trying to be, you know, representative. But at the end of the day, people can choose to respond or not respond, right? And you look at these data, you you will see people. They say they're going to vote for Clinton. They say they're going to vote for Trump, or they say they vote for the third party, or they, you know, they don't respond. But in the particular surveys I look at, essentially, that if you collect all the people. Say they don't、uh, don't want to respond. If you attribute those numbers, say these are people are going to vote for for Trump. If you did that kind of hypothetical retrospective study, you would get the results pretty close to what actually happened, right? Now that does not necessarily say 
that actually is the cause. That's the other hard part for doing these kind of statistical inference because things change, right? Whenever you do these elections, uh, polls, that happens way before the, the election happens or, you know, even time close, things can change, right? People can react to news differently. The data is a snapshot of that moment, you know, whatever happened. But in order to truly understand, in order really to make these uh, predictions in more reliable ways, you really have to understand the people's behavior and the social, you know, environment and what's going on, right? So that the context is a far more important sometimes than these numbers themselves. To bring it back to sort of this overarching idea about, you know, what what you do if you're a data-driven person or what the world should be now that data is so prevalent in our society. You know, when you think about school, so high, I'm talking high school, elementary school, before you go to college, you know, the, the two main subjects are math and English. That's what everyone always thinks about is, you know, math, or math and reading, whatever you want to talk about it. But now that our world is becoming so digital and so data-driven, do you think we need to sort of reform school to include this topic of data science or of statistics or how do we reform the education system for what is now this digitally driven world? Yep. Again, that's a great question. I'm going to again to answer to using uh, something was proposed by Rob Liu. Uh, he talked about how do we use data science to reimagine the liberal arts education. Part of the liberal arts education is about a critical thinking. And uh, the stuff I just talked about, for example, you know, thinking about these data, thinking about how they predict election, that involves lots of critical thinking, right? It understand, you know, the human behavior, understand what's going on in society, understand the politics, right? So there's definitely this big angle, even not just reform the school, but actually rethinking the liberal arts education. Now, Harvard Data Science Review itself, we have a column called Minding the Future, which is for K-12 students even undergraduate students. And uh, we have a couple of articles. One of them is written uh, by a high school student talking about what kind of data science program she wants from a purely a student perspective, right? And you can see how they felt like certain courses taught there are a bit out of date, right? Because they are not connected with what the rapid evolving data science itself. And most recently, uh, through the column editor, we got some opinions, collections from the students and the teachers about their reaction to the chat GPT, to the, you know, generative AIs, how that's going to impact their education. But at the same time, there's lots of uh, you know, technical questions like how does the AI work, right? How does ChatGPT work? What's the what's the algorithm behind it? So you can see that there are these very natural uh, topics that you don't even have trying to engage the students because the students wants to be engaged with these kind of topics. So I think uh, at this moment, there are just lots of lots of opportunities for us, not just about uh, high schools and for, for the college, for the, you know, for the university. You know, my own department has really has added a lot more courses compared to past into machine learning to others because, you know, that's a lot of things need to be study now. Again, let me just plug in for Harvard Data Science Review, since this is Harvard Data Science Review podcast, that we have a whole uh, section called Stepping Stones, for which we publish all kinds of educational articles. Again, at this moment, just it's, it's just as diverse as data science itself. There are lots of different uh, thinking, different ways of doing it. But I guess one thing is in common, everybody feels the urgency 
of doing something before, you know, too late. Not to push here, but do you think it is too late? Can academia, academia is notoriously slow. Is it actually going to be able to keep up with the changing digital and technological world in a way that's useful for students? I mean, is it is it even worth going to college anymore if you're studying one of these topics? Well, let me give you a two-part answer. Uh, first, in terms of are we too late? Well, I have written articles, and I say this openly, so I told people, like, you know, at the very beginning, maybe 10 years ago, there are lots of these master programs in data science in place, right? And I was kind of a semi-serious and semi-joking. I said, well, you know, show me the curriculum of that master program, and I can tell you which dinosaur created that. Right, just because you can see that if this out of statistical department, you will see mostly statistical courses, but maybe adding one or two computer science course and vice versa. It's quite clear, and it was quite clear. Everybody trying to do something. That's definitely correct because when something happens, none of us are really well prepared. We should do something. But as the time goes on, we really need to think more systematically, think more scientifically, and I think that that's a lot of thinkings are taking place now. The data science education is definitely behind the data science research itself. That's quite clear, okay? But that says absolutely nothing about not going to the college, to go to the university. I would say that's actually the reason that you need to go to college, go to university, in order to really understand this complex world. For example, it's very simple, right? We all use ChatGPT, but not too many people really understand what ChatGPT can do, why it's doing what it's doing, why it's hallucinating, why it's doing something very well, why it can't just, you know, finding a single article. We need a lot more young talents to study those things. But we also like need a lot of young talents to come to university, come to the college, tell tell the faculty like myself, right? You know, the dinosaurs say, what do you need to change? So that you guys need to be here, right? Because if you've not been here, things are not going to change. So that I think there's more reason to come. I think that this this is gives the same vein as a lot of our listener questions, which is the worry that the the field isn't going to be able to keep up or that the educating field is not going to be able to keep up. And that brings me to this question of, you know, how is it that we are able to use the statistical methods that we have now and the statistics that we have now to apply to what is now a much more diverse population, especially given all the statistics and all the data and all the information that we have on the population as is, how do we now use that data on people of different races, genders, socioeconomic statuses, and especially a lot of groups that didn't exist in the lexicon 30 years ago? You know, we're using a lot of data to explain things about the population, about groups that that literally weren't in the vocabulary 30 years ago. So how do we make sure that we are not missing people? We are not skipping over people. We are not grouping groups into, into groups that they shouldn't be grouped into with the data we have now. How do we keep up with the changing world? Again, I think I want to answer your question in two parts. One is really regarding the methodology. You know, the question is that, you know, we have developed all these statistical methodologies and, uh, you know, are they still useful in this era, which everything seems more automated, it's different. So my answer there is really these methodologies, particularly the thinking behind them, are incredibly important. And in fact, they don't have to be sophisticated in order to have an impact. 
again, I want to just you know uh, go back to my 2018 article. If you uh, if you read the article, you will see the only statistical concept I used there was mean, variance, and a correlation. Right in a layperson term, is just the average, some spread measure, and how two things evolve together. And with that three very basic concept, I was able to push pretty far to study this whole data quality issues, how the election, you know, went the way it went, and all the stuff, right? And and the paper actually has made a quite a bit of impact. So these methodologies themselves are kind of timeless, but how do you apply them timely? That takes talents, takes the kind of you know understanding the current situation, right? So on and so forth. So that's just about about the, the, the statistical methods. I think that the other part of your question is really about, we have collected so much data, how do we use these data? And we all, I guess anybody in the right mind, we want to say we want you to use the data responsibly, we want the data to advance the society uh, instead of further divide the society, right? We all know the good reasons to use the data. But the problem is when you actually start using data, we all have our own bias. Sometimes these biases are not kind of really malicious. For example, I can tell you what bias uh, happens typically. Uh, let's say you want to get something done, and you know your boss wants the answer. You want to get something done, right? It, it's good. You want to get something done. Then you may just say, "Okay, now here's a piece of data I found. Let me just analyze that." And you don't have time to think about it. You know where that data comes from. Whether the data actually is representative of what you want to do. Could there be a bias in the data? You just didn't think through those. It's not ill intention, want to prove something wrong, but you just want to get this thing done, right? And you just didn't have time, didn't do the due diligence. And that actually happens a lot. That's actually a very hard problem for our society to deal with because with so many things going on, we all think there's a great power in data. We all rush into the data trying to seek the answer. Now, as you and I, we're both statisticians, we know that, as people say, uh, when you torture the data enough, the data will confess, right? We tend to get the answer we want. And that actually, to me, is the biggest problem. I always tell my students, like, you know, if we do simulation, we find the answer is is what we wanted, triple check it. Because it's so easy just to fool yourself. Say, oh, I'm done. I got the answer we want. I think we're now the society. This is one of the, my biggest worries. We overfit our theory. We cherry picking. Sometimes not intentionally. Sometimes we do intentionally do those things, right? So I think that is the one thing that uh, requires really a uh, lot more due diligence, a lot more emphasis about the scientific replicability, a lot more emphasis on understanding the problem for which you apply these methods using these data for, right? But having said so, that it is also become more complicated. And that's, I think, it's a new challenge that we face. Um, and you know well, you may remember that, you know, we run together a workshop with the uh, UN, right? IOM UN. UN. We, we talk about the whole migration issues. There's these disinformations, right? Now, here's the complication because people know disinformation is bad, misinformation is bad. So guess what happens? Now you, you can easily find examples in many medias, right? When some medias or someone does not want to hear something, they just label that thing as misinformation, right? In, uh, <laughs> yes, right? I'm just, like, oh, I don't like it. It must that's be disinformation. That's misinformation, right? And in fact, that act itself is misinformation, right? So now the question is like, as a 
professional statistical data scientist, and if we truly respect the integrity of our profession, it is at least part of our job responsibility to figure out when we see something, when something is labeled as information, disinformation, misinformation, like which one is actually closer to be the, to the truth. And that's not easy, particularly if you have someone uh, intentionally trying to mislead you, right? And so we need a lot more young people, young talents to come to the field of data science, but keep the very open-minded. I think we now uh, have too many opinions, too many possible data to show whatever we're saying. We can find some data to support us. And we also have this thing, which I, I can say pretty openly, that's a pretty bad. We have these personalized news. You will be fed the news that only you want to hear. And those things are really not that good for those of us trying to really find out what's the truth, what's the misinformation, right? You want to keep your own mind open. It's very hard to keep your mind open because we all human beings, we all have our preference, we all have our ideology. So I have to constantly guard myself against not to say, well, oh, that seems the obvious answer, but you have to think a little bit harder. And you know, to being the editor of a Harvard Data Science Review, that gives me additional responsibility trying to make sure that whatever we publish will be as you know, close to the truth as possible. Speaking of of the truth and of you know, sort of your fears for the future, during the COVID pandemic, we saw this very steep increase in skepticism regarding data on masking, data on the vaccine, data on spread. You know, and we heard from government officials and from very highly respected scientists, things that turned out to be not true. Um, you know, my my mom uses the phrase, um, often wrong, never in doubt. <laughs> and, uh, you know, this, it, it's had really serious impacts. It's led to a lot of Americans, a significant portion of America and the rest of the world for that matter, distrusting science altogether. So how can we possibly restore that trust after sort of people that are supposed to be trustworthy said things with such positivity that turned out not to be true? How do we restore that trust? It's a, another great question. And fortunately, I do have an answer for you. And it's, it, it's the answer does not come from me. I uh, was invited to attend an event with the Museum of Science in Boston. And this was from the president of the Museum of, of Science, because they are really in the business of gaining the public trust. Right. So his point, I completely agree. He's saying, you know, uh, the first thing is that whoever delivered the message, those people need to be to be trustworthy. Right. Because when the public does not trust a person, uh, they won't trust their message. And when they don't trust their message, they don't trust the message behind how to create this message. When they don't trust the message, they eventually don't trust the science itself. Right. So there is kind of a, you know, one step, you know, after another. So as a data scientist, how do we do things? Uh, you know, this is a hard one, right? Because uh, the reason I'm kind of a rambling a little bit, I want to see how do I deliver this in the correct way. Um, let's say sometimes as a data scientist or any scientist, sometimes you will find is what people call inconvenient truths, meaning that that's what the data tells you, but you probably this is going to, against your ideology. Oh, you said this thing, if I said it, it's going to do some damage, right? So now you struggle. 
like, you know, what do I do, right? I'm, I'm a data scientist on one hand. I should be telling this story, telling me whatever I find. On the other hand, you know, I have my judgment. You know, I have these value judgment, which I think that's realistic. It's unrealistic to say, you know, everyone has to be neutral. I don't think that's realistic. But I do think there is a way. I know this might be hard to practice. I actually wrote the last editorial. I mentioned this. You know, sometimes you, you may hear that when someone representing government, uh, like when someone comes to the academia conference to deliver talk, they typically start by saying a disclaimer. Say, I'm speaking on myself. I don't represent the agency I work with. So that gave me an inspiration. I said, well, maybe that's what we should do. When we present, we say, well, this part I'm presenting is based on me as a statistician, representing my profession. That's a statistical analysis. But there's another part. I may render judgment values, and I think since this part is really my personal opinion. You just need to make clear, right? The last thing you want to do is that, and this will get all of us into trouble, which is that if public feels like data science or any scientific tools are used to justify some ideology or, or conclusions already drawn, the public will just not trust you anymore. And say, well, you know, they, yes, they always say that because because they already have the concrete draw. So sometimes we just have to deliver the inconvenient truths. But you can still express your strong opinions. Just make sure you make a disclaimer. That is not based on this analysis. That's based on my judgment. And our judgment is a valid part of lots of scientific inference. I know it may not be easy to separate, but at least it's a one way to think about how do we deal with these difficult situations when sometimes we get ourselves into it. Audience that isn't necessarily a data scientist. We have, whether you're a data scientist or not, we have data coming at us like a hurricane through journalists, through politics, through everything. Data can feel really overwhelming. But also, when you say that there's this, you know, here's what the statistics say, but here's my personal opinion, I think that can be really confusing for people who see data as black or white. You know, the data should say one thing or the other. How can you have a personal opinion about what the data says? What advice do you have for people who are reading these news articles every day or listening to the news and seeing all this data and sort of assuming that the data is, if it's 86%, it's 86%. There shouldn't be a personal opinion around that. Thank you for the great question that I guess the my answer to that question We'll start with a statement that I usually don't make uh, because statisticians never say anything with 100% certainty. But for this one, I will say it's 100% certainty. There's no such thing as black and white data. Data always comes with context. And the data are far more complicated than what most people think. Data are not these... Uh, numerical numbers you study in textbook. Data are simply a representation of some information people intend to collect. How people collect the information, how they measure these, uh, the information they want to collect, what was the motivation for collecting them, how they process these data, how they analyze these data, all matters. And uh, this is particularly clear, for example, for these opinion polls. Like, if somebody asks you a question involving opinions, if you ask the question today, two days later, somebody asks you the same question, you may actually give a different answer. 
Okay, it's not like you're lying. Now the thing is, let's say, well, you say, well, that's correct because you know today I changed my opinion. Yes, but think about the study. The study only need to collect the data once, twice, right? And they need to draw a conclusion to be applicable in some future cases. Nobody's lying. Nobody's doing anything bad, but it, they may or may not be applicable, right? So I would say the first thing: never view data as black and white. This I actually learned from、um, a philosopher. Her name is Sabina、uh, Leonly. I hope I pronounce her name correct. I'm really bad on names. She wrote an article, basically talk about there's no such thing as raw data. I initially felt like I understand, you know, when you have opinion polls, lots of things you don't have the raw data. You know, whatever this raw means, right? What is the true opinion? That's hard to say. But I was I was thinking about, you know, what's wrong with data? For example, I'm just counting how many people in that room, right? That got to be raw data as long as you know how to count. And her point is that well, that's true. That data may looks like you know static data set, maybe all true the data. But why did you collect data for that room without collecting from the other room? What was your intention, right? All these selections actually matters in the end. How you explaining those things? Now, Liberty, you are very familiar with the media. You know how the one thing media can do if they want to. Manipulate public opinion. They don't have to say anything is not true. They just need to selective report what they want to report. You know, you you will get a distorted picture. So that's very much like that. And so dealing with the data is, is a lot more complex than the simple thing people present to you. So、uh, you shouldn't really never take anything for granted here. We have so many questions that we're skipping, and so I, I I hope we can we can give them to you, and listeners can write in and get some of their questions answered. But we do have to wrap up the podcast at this point, and as you know, we always、Gosh. wrap up with a magic <laughs> wand question. So you're really so,、uh, you're really doing the hosting to me, huh? Okay, we're doing、well. the whole shebang. You're getting it all. So、um, for your magic wand question, if you could wave your magic wand. And have a completely accurate data set on anything. What would that data set be? Complete accurate. Well, I guess the easy answer for me to to give is such thing does not exist. But I guess that's not the answer you're looking for. You're no. Saying, you're saying what will be?、Uh, well, I think this conversation has been pretty serious,、uh, as it should be. So I'm going to end up with something. Uh, lighter, I said I would love to have a complete accurate data set on wine, wine quality, or the consumptions. You know anything you want, but I'm just at this moment. I think it probably is getting late in the afternoon. I, my mind started wandering to wine, so I would get something accurate about the wine because the wine world is very confusing because there are so many different factors. I did get a chance to publish my first article in a wine magazine, and the title of the article is "In Statistics I Seek Simplicity, in Wine I Seek Complexity." I love that. What a title! And on that note, I think at 4:30 p.m. we will all be retiring for a nice glass of wine. You've you've made me now crave it. And thank you very much for for answering our listeners' questions. Well, thank you, but Liberty, I need you to、uh, make a promise online that I will get the chance to do the same to you for an episode. Deal. Okay. All right. Deal. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Harvard Data Science Review Podcast. To stay updated with all things HDSR, you can visit our website at hdsr.mitpress.mit.edu or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the HDSR. A special thanks to our executive producer, Rebecca McLeod, and producers, Tina Toby Mack and Ariane Winfrey. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. This has been the Harvard Data Science Review. Everything data science and data science for everyone.